Welcome to Pablo Held Investigates. In today's episode, I'm talking to one of my favorite bassists of all time, the great Mark Johnson. I was always drawn to his warm sound and fluid way of playing, always taking risks, always propelling the music forwards. The first time I saw him live was in 2004 during a concert of the John Abercrombie Quartet at the Domitzile in Dortmund. A night I'll never forget and in my mind I often go back to my memories of this particular concert. It was a great pleasure for me to finally talk to him and I'm excited to share our conversation now with you. Yeah, you mentioned Joey and he's actually, um, for me, you and him together are just one of my absolute favorite rhythm sections of all time. And you really have a special thing together. I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on your relationship with him and how it evolved throughout the years and what you've learned from him maybe or what, you know, what you've shared. Yeah, I think from the very beginning we had an affinity for um, the beat, you know, the pulse Yeah. in the music. And we both kind of vibrate the same way in terms of where we feel the subdivisions and how how the beat has a life and how it bounces you know and i think that from the very beginning we both r realized we had this kind of affinity and uh i look for time ways to, to try to play with him and uh it's really started in the 80s with Pierre Nunzi, i think yeah right for the most part although we we knew about each other from my woody herman days in the late 70s we I think we first played together in a hotel room and he was playing brushes on a phone book or a newspaper or something. And we were jamming in the hotel room, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, Joey's great. Great sense of humor. I love hanging with him, too. It's not just uh, the music. He's a he's a really fun cat to be with. Mm, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and especially these bands with uh, John Abercrombie, the quartet is one of my favorite bands. Um, maybe you can share some, some memories of that band because that band has played together a lot and, and made three albums, I think. Yeah, yeah we toured a bunch uh, a few years and made those three records. And uh, it, Abercrombie was a, was a wonderful kind of leader in a certain way for uh, musicians like Joey and, my, and myself because he presented structures that, were pretty open and allowed for a lot of creativity from the rhythm section. And so we could, sometimes you could take a tune and, and just create a whole different personality with it. Feel wise, tempo, it could be anything at any, at any time. So, uh, it was wide open and John, John was a, a brilliant kind of, I think his, John even said his favorite band though he's a leader he says he liked being a sideman in his own band yeah. and i think it that's how it reflects you know i think that's how it sounds it sounds like an integrated unit all the time where every member is contributing their creativity to the improvisations you know basically that's what they are structured improvisation and another uh, another great band uh, which is very very dear to my heart is uh, the the trio with uh, John Taylor who be, he was my teacher you know so oh, yeah. uh, I that that's my favorite record of his Roslyn you know 
We uh, miss him, you know. He oh, was yeah, a brilliant pianist, but an incredible composer, I think. And uh, I don't know if he's underrated or not, but I, uh, he should sure deserves a lot more accolades. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. What was your experience like with him as a, as a band leader? Um, I think it was, it was good. I mean, he, was, uh, he had an idea about the kind of tunes he wanted to present, Again, his rhythmic thing was kind of up and buoyant and driving. Yeah. And, uh, but he could also be, you know, introspective and mysterious. And, you know, uh, he had all this different aspects to his vocabulary, you know, pianistically speaking. Mm -hmm. You can get a lot of different color out of the instrument. And, uh, and he liked to explore the whole range, you know, from bottom to top. But I find, you know, I don't know what, if it's a British thing or a cultural, but I actually feel this cultural identity, you know, in his writing, his, his British sensibility. And I really like that. Yeah. I have a, I have a couple of bootlegs from, from you guys, uh, from that band, you know, from, really? the, from the trio. And there's a really, really special one. I mean, I love all of them, but there's the one which I had first when I was a teenager, and that's from the Domizil in Dortmund. Wow. And you guys really go for it, uh, I mean, on all of them, but especially on that one. It seems to me like you you guys want to get lost together, you know? You, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On all the levels. aspect of things. <laughs> you know, the, on all levels, like rhythmically and, and, and harmonically, and you know, structure-wise. Uh, but it's with a sense of communion and camaraderie where you, where you can't get lost in a, in a way. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. You don't find that kind of, uh, chemistry all the time. And, and when you do, you know, you just kind of like a child in the playground, you know, you just kind of can't, can't stop, you know? You're Absolutely. <laughs> and all of you guys, you have that childlike energy when, when you, when you play together. With all the sophistication, you know, in your in your backpack, in a way, yeah. uh, always there to to help you, but uh, that that frees you up so much that you can do anything, in a way. Um, and I wonder what you what you uh, personally did for did did for that. I mean, it, it has to do, I suppose, with with grounding yourself with all the knowledge about the music and about time, rhythm, harmony, and so, sort of all these things, but, but yeah, how, how do you become more free? Yeah, I think for me, it started playing with Abercrombie and Erskine. I mean, I've been, I was always interested in the, in, from the Bill Evans days and, and all of my saturation listening to the Bill Evans trio for, uh, in my early youth. I was interested in that obfuscation of one, you know, where's one? Well, yeah. You know it's there, but how is it that they are playing over the bar line and obscuring where the top of the bar, you know, where the, where it is? And Bill often uh, he displaced the harmony, so it would disguise kind of where you were in the bar. I got used to that kind of thing, playing with Bill and listening a lot to Bill Evans. And then later, getting to play with John Abercrombie and Peter Erskine, we were, again, exploring aspects of freedom within structure so i got a lot more accustomed to 
integrating an eight eight bar segment of time. So I could really you, you get grounded that way when you play with good musicians like that. But Peter, his time is impeccable. Yeah, and he's and is so grounded, and uh, it just allowed me more freedom to maneuver horizontally. You know, I. It happened more uh, later in my career playing with Paul Motion as well. Mm. He's an amazing drummer with a sense of Paul's. It was unbelievable, but his um, where he was in the form was was never in doubt, even though he could leave a lot of space or he could break up the phrasing so you wouldn't realize you're in a eight uh, thirty two bar form or something you know but you knew it was there but he played through it so it was fluid in that way you know it was really understanding that there is a, a structure at play is liberating I, I, you know, I hear everybody talk about free playing free playing you know well I'm a free free player but I think the most freedom that you can really have fun with to me is if there's some structure right. being implied and uh, even if it's a simple structure like a 12 bar blues structure has integrity you know so so when you're playing something freely over the structure or around it or through it or destructuring the structure at least you'd have some some points to grab to and play towards and from and within so that's uh, that's kind of how they're going. And something Joe Lovano said to me years ago, we were in a, a master class somewhere, and I heard him say that a player has to have at least two rhythms going on in his head or in his body. Yeah. The one that we're all relating to, you know, the pulse, and then the other one that you're sh making shapes with. So there's, you have, there's these two, at least two counterpuntal, things going on time-wise internally so that you know you know where you are in the form mm. it's a practice you know it's a skill set but if you do it enough with the right players it, it's really fun to play that way and explore things and then you can then it doesn't matter if you are adhering to a strict pulse even if you know this the harmonic structure of a tune you can we just did this with Abercrombie all the time. We would just push and pull and stretch and, okay, it wouldn't be exactly 12 bars. Maybe it'd be 13 or maybe it'd be 12 and a half or maybe it would be who knows, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it, it had that flexibility. How, how does that inform when you play uh, free? I mean, when you play no tunes at all. I mean, that informs... A sense I still of structure think even I think we too, have, right? uh, a, you think like a composer. You know, you start implying structure, even if there, if you even haven't decided on one. So, for an instance, maybe Erskine would play a quarter note uh, ride. Okay, now we have a pulse, but it's it's time no changes maybe. So that's one way of having a free piece. You have something going on that says, okay, we have a a frame <laughs> yeah. and now we're going to paint inside of it. And so it's like that. Now we have a pulse. Well, well, we can play, you know, time, no changes. He can play shapes. He can do everything he wants, but we have this pulse that we're relating to. So that has a feel of some kind mm -hmm. or another way of doing it is, um, uh, 
just play motivically. So little motifs that we kind of play off of and, or maybe I'll set up a harmonic pedal and then that enables the soloist to play different tensions against that pedal that create, you know, a sense of harmony or movement of some kind. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about playing melodies or, you know, improvising melodies, I always admire your ability to, to play lines that, are, that go in a very unexpected way. So, you know, you're always surprising me with how your lines go. But <laughs> on the same, in the same time, the, the lines make sense. And there's a logic to them, which um, then gives the impression of, you know, being timeless or being like a composition in a way. I wonder how you worked on, on your uh, uh, melodic uh, improvisations. Well, funny, you know, uh, I, didn't, I didn't learn jazz chord scales the way a lot of horn players or pianists or guitarists really do. I, I had a pretty strong classical background, so my technique was kind of formed by the solo repertoire that I was working on, which was pretty classical. I mean, you think about it, like Kusevitsky and <laughs> Bottasini and um, some transcriptions of, you know, Ravel or this, that, but it's pretty melodic things, pretty diatonic, actually, for the most part. So I knew my major and minor scales. So if you, I just kind of try to use what information that I knew, <laughs> how to play the bass, things that fingerings and things and tonal keys that I could play in and out of. I think gradually I learned that just playing, you know, with experience, I picked up enough theory that I knew a chord a particular chord function, like, you know, simple two, five, one, I could play one scale across several chords. So then became, you know, a little more linear in that regard, you know, more horizontal, not so vertical through the each chordal structure. Right. Know? Yeah. So I could play, find more common tones going horizontally yeah. instead of vertically arpeggiating through every chord. So that's a little different. Um, I suppose, and uh, and and just starting and stopping phrases in different places, so they don't mm. start and stop the same same place or in the same way, you know. Right. Does it, did a lot of uh, um, did you also check a lot of uh, uh, you know horn players out and, and and stuff like that? Because yeah, you know. Things, things, everybody is an influence at some point in another, you know, you know. I, I saw Eddie Gomez sell somebody once in writing. I think he was doing an interview and he said, yeah, I think more like a trumpet, you know. And in a way, the bass does kind of have that kind of, especially if you're playing in the upper register, you do some repeated notes, you have some, it feels like a horn sometimes if you get, if you think about it. Not a saxophone, although I'd love to, be able to play, you know, legato scales and stuff like oh, a yeah. sax, but but you end up plucking more of the notes with a bass, so it feels a little more, I don't know, guitar or yeah, guitar comes close, but 
I still like to play more. I still go for some legato things. And if you listen to my playing enough, you'll hear that I'm slurring notes and stuff with my left hand. I'm not plucking every note. Mm. So it's a kind of a horn-like conception in terms of that, I guess. Yeah. Or vocal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I'm wondering when you came up in, in the end of the 70s, who inspired you from your peers, maybe on the bass also? Who inspired you? What did you learn from from your peers in your age? Well, my peers. I mean, my first peers were in, in, at university, you know. And uh, you don't maybe know this guy. Bob Bowman was his name, and he was a student as I was. But his jazz conception was pretty advanced when I got to school, and uh, so I learned a lot from him just about articulation and feel and what it meant to be a jazz bass player. Because I really, at that point, was still steeped pretty well in the classical side of things. I've listened more to Scott LaFaro as a result of his influence, I think, because um, I was really into the Eddie Gomez trio with Bill. And all through high school, you know, that's what I was checking out. Yeah. But then I went back, when I got to university, I started listening to people like... uh, like Scott LaFaro, the other bassist with Gary Peacock, a little bit, some of the ECM bass players like Dave Holland. They're a little older than me, but I guess I could still call them peers. Miroslav Vitus, Eberhard yeah. um, um, Weber. When you think of these guys, uh, is there something that you can put your finger on? Some, some Like something you you admire about that guy or that guy? Yeah, well, okay, so... For Miroslav, it was just uh, that period right in the end of the 60s and early 70s was he was um, so imaginative and just on fire, you know, and I never, you know, his technique was great. His tune writing was cool. That Mountain in the Clouds album was something sensational. And uh, I just loved that. I thought it was so inspiring. Um, Jaco Pastorius was on the scene by 70, early 70s and or I think, and he was doing crazy things on the electric bass, which I tried to apply to the upright, but it didn't quite work. <laughs> but some of that, you know, some of that ostinato stuff that he would do and this and his feel, his placement was just so beautiful. And where he rode in the within the beat was just something to be it's indescribable. Well you've heard it. And and uh so then um Dave Holland, what a sound, you know. Mm. So, and a, and a language he does. He was really working on developing his own language with uh, improvisate, improv, you know, improvising on a bass. So I was interested in that. His sound mainly, uh, and his kind of some of his ideas, just how he put things together. Older guys like Ron Carter I'd been listening to for a long time. I loved him with the Miles Davis quintet. And uh, that was some brilliant bass playing in those groups, you know. Miles Smiles, great record. I wore that one out. Um, But all those sides with those guys were unbelievable. And then then, uh, my dad was a pianist, so he he loved Oscar Peterson. Mm as well as Bill Evans and Dave Brubeck and a bunch of others. But 
he had some Oscar Peters inside, so I was checking out Ray Brown. And he, Ray, for his pulse and his walking lines, are just beautiful. You know? Wow, what a, and again, another wonderful sound. Clear as a bell, and just his ideas were always so clear and so well-formed, like, be- like beautiful compositions, you know, yeah. just great lines. Then there's a bass player that's a little more obscure. Joey knows this guy because uh, we talked about it, but Andy Simpkins, the bass player with the three sounds. Do you know that group with the, the three sounds with Gene Harris on piano? Check out an album called Blue Jeans, G-E-N-E-S, Blue Jeans. Okay. That The feel they get is just gut bucket, funky, great jazz playing you know mm. i just love that i emulate if i could emulate anybody and that's in that within a walking bass funkiness it would be andy simpkin mm. just that feel <laughs> what a feel so great it put a smile on your face every okay. time you know just beautiful those are the main guys you know eddie and scott gary peacock how was Chuck Bob Israels Dirty. for you? Hmm? What's what's your take on Chuck Israels? I love Chuck's playing. I think he was a a good musician, really good musician, really solid, beautiful sound. But I think his contribution to the Bill Evans Trio was um, is was as an unsung hero because who's going to come after Scott Lafaro? Yeah. Yeah. But somebody needed to. And somebody with a strong enough personality to get Bill out of his funk to go play gigs because yeah. I think Bill was kind of destroyed after Scott's passing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. we're all grateful to Chuck for many things. And he's continued a life in music and he's one of the most thoughtful, articulate speakers about music. You know, just thought, you know, he writes well and. He's a deep guy. I like him a lot. Moonbeams is one of my favorite Bill Evans records. Yeah. Yeah. But so is Affinity, man. Affinity oh, is such, uh, a, yeah. such a deep record. And I think it's your first record with him, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a studio session. What was the experience was in the studio like? It was fun. We were in that old uh, Columbia Studios in the church right. where... Kind of Blue was recorded and a bunch of great records, you know. Mm. So that would have that mystique to it. And um, it was, I never worked in, on an album like that. And that process was very interesting for me because Bill would do a take and then we would go in and listen and they'd talk about it. And then they would say, okay, I'm going to do an intro in this key and then we're going to, you take the melody and then I'll, play two choruses, you play two choruses. I mean, he struck, worked it out the, over the course of playing it once or twice. We figured out the format. And then in that pr- process, I got to listen to the part that I was constructing because then we knew a structure was the same every time. I knew that the solo was going to build like this. So you knew the arc of the solo, where it was going to begin and where it was going to end. So you could, as a bass player, I could... I could get into first gear, second gear, and third gear, you know. So it was great for that. And uh, 
I had a beautiful time playing with them. Matutz was so sweet, what a lovely human being. It shows in the music. Yeah, it does. And uh, it was a great session. I didn't know this at the time, but um, Bill had, was trying to do a different kind of texture and different kind of sound and project. He had called Ron Carter to play cello instead of Toots to play harmonic. But I think Ron, Ron turned down the gig for one reason or another, and I'm, uh, I'm very grateful, <laughs> actually. Sorry, Ron. I love your cello playing, but I really uh, had never, I didn't know Toots before, and it was such a, we ended up collaborating. I played in Toots' band in the mid-'80s. We ended up collaborating later, and it was a really marvelous relationship. There's some great records with you and Fred Hirsch and, and Joey and Toots. Yeah, there are some. Yeah. A couple, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. I think also Toots brought up, uh, brought out. I mean, it's the combination, of course, but uh, Toots brought out um, some different aspects of of Bill Evans's playing, uh, um, especially in that record. I think. Yeah, I think so too. As an accompanist, especially, you know, yeah. got into some other things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you know, um, when when you learn a song with with Bill Evans together, would you show your sheet music or would you sometimes also show you the song by playing? No, usually we had a, the sheet music on it. You know, Toots brought in a few tunes. I think Snow Peas is on that record, yeah. that Phil Markowitz tune. And uh, they had sheet music and then Bill would mark it up if it, you wanted to change the harmony or something. But that's basically all we had. And when he would bring in a new standard for you, for you guys to play? Uh, would he bring sheet music or would he show you the standard, you know, by just by playing it for you? Sometimes, you know, as I got into the group, uh, he would just run a tune at soundcheck. Sometimes he would write copy down. Often he would write down the changes for me, but sometimes it'd be on, you know, hotel stationery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's great. I have those books. I still have all of those things. You know, I kept oh, them. Oh man, I would souvenirs. love to see them. Yeah, I, see. I have. They're... I have a couple of uh, his handwritten sheets, and yeah. I really like his handwriting. It really looks beautiful, and it and it shows how how he thinks about how he thinks about stuff. Yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, he had um, a shorthand. He had a way of writing chord symbols that was kind of revolutionary. I think at the time, back in the fifties. Mm, how so? How how do you mean? Well, some of the little, like the little triangle that you see for major seven. Yeah. I think that was one of his and Scott LaFaro's devices. And the, yeah, sometimes uh, instead of an M for a minor seven, they'd write a horizontal. Yeah, the minor dash. Seven. Yeah. That kind of thing. Oh, okay. So that's credited to him. You say, it's interesting. Now, when we talk about harmony with Bill. Did he explain a couple of devices of his to you, like how, how to exchange harmony in a standard or in a, in a tune? No. Could you no, ask? No, he just expected me to hear it. Yeah. But did you ask him sometimes about certain certain? I tried to, but he wasn't, he didn't feel like he was a, an educator. You know, and he didn't want to go there. Ah, okay. I mean, he gave me some sheet music once. This was his lesson. He said, here, take these. He gave me like the original published version of Autumn in New York. 
Wow. Okay. And if you see the original published version of music of anything, you know it's the most kind of basic vanilla harmony that they put on those things. Bill would rework the tunes that he did often because, they, first of all, they needed it, but also because he wanted to feel the harmony move more. Yeah. You know. So he said, here, here's the tune. Go work out some harmony for it. So there's a fundamental harmony, and then there's another harmony that's maybe even more fundamental that <laughs> – I don't know. Bill just had a way of, of, I can't speak to that much, that depth of harmony that he, you know, you talk to my wife, Eliani, <laughs> she'll tell you more about that. Well, it, I think it shows in your playing that you know exactly. I think it's more intuitive for me than it, anything. Okay. You know, Bill didn't like me to play the same note in a row. He thought that if I played the same, if we're playing quarter notes, he wanted to have more movement in the line, mm -hmm. not to play, you know, yeah. if it's C minor seven, he didn't want to hear two or three C minor, the C note yeah. two or three times in the bar. Yeah. Once is enough. Hmm. Harmony is a funny thing because you can destroy a tune, make it sound like unrecognizable. But Bill had a way of making a standard just and making it sound better, like more un more understandable and more beautiful, you know, because of the way that the, the harmony would move from from one chord to another uh, or for a function, maybe across. He would harmonize the melody notes in a way that, so that it had more movement and... Uh, You know, you know, I think as a pianist, you must have studied and know a little bit what those inner voicings do, you know, when you move from a, even from a, like a sus chord to a dominant. Yeah. That little movement there is just sets up enough little tension and resolution system just going from two, one chord to the next. But that kind of thing, you know. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I read that the first time you played with him was sitting in at the Village Vanguard. Is that correct? That's right. And then yeah. in, in another interview, I heard you talk about an audition. So well, it was kind of an audition. I mean, the, the sitting in at the Vanguard was already an audition. Okay, yeah. But there wasn't another audition afterwards, or this was, this was it? Well, I guess you could call it... I guess I was still on probation. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't hire me fully until uh, we did a gig... I think it was, I thought it was in Europe. And I, if I'm not mistaken, Tony Bennett was on that date. Uh -huh. Is he singing a tune with Bill? I can't remember exactly. It's a little fuzzy in my mind. But um, after that particular gig, it was a radio taping or TV taping or something. And uh, Bill... He, he came to me and said, uh, yeah, when I hire somebody, I usually like a long, a, at least a year commitment. So he put it like this. So if it's all right with you, um, I'd like to hire you for a year and we'll see how it goes. You know, I said, it's all right with me. Yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? So I was, a, you know, I was, I was a 
cloud nine for a while. Yeah. yeah. That was amazing. <laughs> I'm grateful for his philosophy because it does take about a year of playing together for the chemistry to, and for the knowledge of the music to really get ingrained, you know. And his book, he had a pretty good sized book, you know. He had a lot of material that he drew from. And although I had steeped my listening years in bills, I kind of knew it just from osmosis, I guess, if nothing else. But I was familiar enough with his book. But I didn't want to not read the sheet music. I think I looked at, I had the sheet music on a music stand for a year and a half. Yeah. And then finally, in Paris, it was at at Espace Cardin the, that that actually became an album called uh, the Paris Volume One and Volume Two. Volumes One and Two, and that was the first gig I didn't use the music. Wow! I just listened to that before before I called you. Yeah, man, thirty four Skidoo scared me to death. Oh yeah, you know how that moves. Ooh. I had to solo on that. Yep. I was scared to death. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you how do you deal with a situation like that? I just holding on for dear life, you know. I was <laughs> I was always in a panic, you know. But um Bill and Joe were so great, you know, they were such consummate musicians and they would boom they would buoy you up, you know, if you felt like you were tripping or stumbling they would never let you down mm. and bill was very generous like that mm -hmm. yeah. did you did you analyze a couple of his songs also like away from the uh from the stage some tunes like reperson i knew had a lot of minor major sevens so i worked out you know what were the common tones through the harmony yeah so i could play a a, a more a better melody when I was improvising on that. Yeah. I studied, you know, some of the tunes he played were in unfamiliar keys, like Up With The Lark. It's like E major, A major. Those are not familiar keys as much for me. I was more into the flat keys, you know. So I was, Although you're a bassist. Yeah, you'd think that I would know those better, but just <laughs> as a jazz player, they're not as familiar, you yeah. know. So... I kind of studied that a little bit more, some of the ins and outs and the, where the notes lie on the bass. I heard somebody who talked with him uh, about Time Remembered, and he said something like he wanted to, to do something with half steps and perfect fifths. And like when you think about the harmony, that's a lot of the movement. He never talked about that to me. Oh, okay. No. But I will tell you that when we were playing Nardis, He was exploring that, and he had been listening to um, that Rachmaninoff themes and variations, uh, variations Paganini. on a theme by Paganini. Yeah. So if you listen to the, how he develops his solo out front, the introduction, especially on the Paris concerts, it's so well executed. It's very thematic in how the, the each chorus proceed, you know, develops and proceeds from chorus to chorus mm. very, to me very almost composed the way he it's not composed he even provides it but 
structured like a composition, very beautiful. And he was doing some things harmonically that were, I thought, new for him. If you listen to the Narvis, it's really cool. Yeah. It got freer and freer throughout these years, right? Yeah. In his intro, especially. He called that his therapy. <laughs> that makes no sense. Said, no matter what's going on the whole night, it could be the worst night of all. But, you know, but when we come to that tune, he said, that's our therapy. And he said, um, we're going to go into it and something's going to happen. <laughs> right. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned Paul Motion when you started to play with him, you know, that, that's a, that great Bill Evans record, I mean, tribute record to Bill Evans. And I, in the last days, when I was, you know, of course, going back to a lot of records that I know in and out from you, but also I tried to find a couple of records that I haven't heard before. And uh, one of the records I found is, uh, is the record with Mazabumi and Paul Motion, uh, Miles Mode. I really love that one. Oh. Um, and yeah, I, I think you had a really unique feel with, with Paul. Um, uh, and you already touched a little bit on that, but I think, of course, you have an obvious connection and, and relationship. Uh, how, how was it after, after the fact, you know, having, having played with Bill Evans for so long and then getting Paul's perspective on things? Uh, how did that inform your experience, maybe, you know? I thought, for me, it kind of came full circle because um, I was such a devotee of, uh, of Scott LaFaro, you know. He was front and center to my whole reason for being a jazz bassist, really. Um, when it push comes to shove, I'd have to say he's the most important voice for me. Yeah. as a bassist so having played with Bill and then get to play with Paul was really a, 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 and Paul's playing had had matured and developed and evolved you know had evolved uh, conceptually uh, more modern in a way than, than, than Bill at least from a exploration of time and structures and different kinds of ways of playing and shaping time and just so beautiful uh, it was an evolution and bill died too soon if you ask me but paul kept moving while playing with with keith jarrett and, and charlie hayden the music was moving it was developing And so, Paul, I got to experience that, the result of that development in Paul's playing. So conceptually, it was really open, very, um, you know, un I'd say understated. Like, if you really listen to Paul's vocabulary, he's not like a Buddy Rich kind of player or anything. He doesn't wow you with technique. I mean, he had some technique. He could play the ideas that he wanted to get out. But it was more about placement and sound and and space. Yeah. You know. And energy so the, also. And energy, but pulse. I mean, there was always this beautiful pulse, 
if it was 4-4 four, four or if it was a ballad, it didn't matter. It was like this beautiful pulse, and it was so so solid but so alive, and you could play anything over it. I mean, I really got – really felt most the most liberated in a way playing with Paul Motion. I could felt like my soloing could really launch. I could really launch with him. And I could play across the bar. I could, I could speed up, slow down. I could do, you know, you could do anything with him, and he would always just be right there. You could even screw up and get lost, and he'd still be like <laughs> right there. It was great. Wow. Uh, boy, I've I've been really fortunate. I have to say, I've played just some really great drummers. Wow. Yeah. There's a trio with Paul Motion and Chris Potter also that I really like. I have a bootleg of, of that band. Did that get recorded? I guess so. I mean, I, I don't know. I, on the record, I don't know. But I have I have a bootleg of that band, and it's it's beautiful. It's very, uh, you know, you guys go out there also. It's, yeah. You covered a lot of, a lot of ground with, with the repertoire also, you know, playing Paul's tunes. Yeah, that's Chris's fun. tunes. We also played with um, Wolfgang Musspiel. Oh yeah. Are you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I and don't know uh, Wolfgang. Yeah. We played some of Paul's tunes in with Wolfgang, and with Piranunzi. We were always sort of exploring some of Paul's music mm. with these different ensembles, so, like Gang of Five. I must have played that in three or four different ensembles. Mm. It was fun, wide open, you know. Yeah. It's cool. Um, Mark, do you have a, a a daily routine that you that you always go when you have time? Uh, not really. I I'm just trying my best to maintain, you know, what little technique I still have. I go to the <laughs> bass and, you know, play a few long tones and just try to keep my fingers so it's somewhat limber. A couple of scales and yeah. get up and down the the fingerboard. As a last last uh, topic, maybe you can talk about something that you've listened to recently that really, really moved you that you would like to share? You know, I, I hate to say this, but I, I just put the three sounds on the other day and I, I listened to the whole record again. I just love that that album, Blue Jeans. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to check it out after this. <laughs> <laughs> good. It's fun. It's a, you know, it's a feel-good record. Yeah, we have to have those, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great, Mark. Uh, thank All you right, so much for doing this. And, yeah, uh, well, my pleasure. Let's do it some more. Thanks for listening to Pablo Held Investigates. If you like the interviews, subscribe to this channel. Also, you can check out all my previous interviews on YouTube for the respective video versions. They will slowly be posted here as well. To be notified for new interviews, you can subscribe to my newsletter on my website at pabloheld.com or find me on social media. I'm at Pablo Held Music on Instagram and on Facebook. Doing these interviews is a lot of fun, but also lots of work that I'm doing in addition to my touring and teaching schedule and my family life. So if you would like to support the interview series, please consider donating at steadyhq.com slash pabloheld. That's steadyhq.com slash pabloheld.
Thanks for listening.